Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Blast from the Past. Why is a former NDP captain minister jumping ship and joining BC United? Plus, why was an eight-year-old boy's nail polish removed by a teacher without parental consent? And later, heat wave. How are cities preparing for a very hot weekend? And what impact will the nonprofit housing sector see after the damning BC housing probe? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Last from the past, a former NDP cabinet minister says he's joined BC United because the new Democrats, his party, are an urban party and they don't advocate enough for rural BC. Now, Harry Lully uh, was first elected in 1991 from the community of Merritt. He represented that uh, uh, riding uh, called Yale Lillewitt and was re-elected four times before he uh, was defeated in 2013. Uh, he served as a Minister of Transportation and Highways back in the 1990s as well. Mr. Lully was in the legislature today when the surprising news broke that uh, he, of course, had join the BC United Party. He joins us now. Mr. Ali, thank you for speaking to us today. Hello. What prompted you to join BC United? Well, you know, the abandonment of rural British Columbia by the BC NDP since they've taken office. Traditionally, uh, you could uh, count on uh, you know, BC NDP under whether it was Gabe Barrett or Mike Harcourt or Glenn Clark when we formed government then that the interests of rural British Columbia will be looked after. This hasn't been the case in the last six or seven years since John Horgan and, you know, Mr. Eby have taken over. And you'll see that uh, abandonment in the wholesale closure of, uh, you know, dozens of sawmills and pulp mills and, you know, literally thousands of workers and families uh, without livelihoods anymore. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of it is the government's own doing uh, by, uh, holding back on not approving hundreds of cutting permits across the province and having a one-sided uh, old growth strategy that was dominated by urban and environmental interests without representation from the, the workers or communities. And I think those are some of the things that they don't want to talk about. They keep talking about the pine beetle and, and glo- global warming, etc. But what about their own uh, uh, you know, negligence uh, in terms of not looking after the interests of communities? And it just doesn't just end with forestry. Is there's also you know no support for agriculture, mining, and rural health care. Those are all issues, and that was the uh, the final straw for me uh, when I realized it, that this NDP government is not going to look after the interests of rural British Columbia. It'll be best served by Cabell Falcon and the new vision of uh, BC United. Now, were, were you a member of the NDP, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong here? Were you not kicked out of the party three years ago? Yeah, two and a half years ago. And since then, I've just basically lied low. I've gone about my business, you know, filed for my retirement papers and all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't. Uh, so, so I've been doing that just in private life. And so, you know, uh, any response they might have about that is, I mean, I think it's just a little childish. And basically, in the last little while, I've been watching what's happening to, to rural British Columbia. They don't care. There's no interest. There's no MLAs in that caucus that actually stand up in that BC NDP caucus to talk about rural British Columbia and their issues and, and the challenges that we're facing. I am a dyed-in-the-world uh, rural person. I'm a champion for rural BC. I was that when I was MLA minister uh, within the government and also in opposition and continued on afterwards as I've been uh, doing consultancy work in the forest industry. So when I see uh, you know my neighbors uh, and my friends out of jobs and having to move and can't pay their mortgages, you know it's really tough. It's rough, really, really, really tough trying to see that. 
And, uh, you know, this government has shown no, little to no interest in actually looking after the interests of rural British Columbians. Are you planning to run for BC United in the next election? No, no, I mean, that's not even the thought. I, you know, I think this is something, the narrative that the BC NDP is pushing. But, you know, what I will be doing is is advising uh, in uh, both Kevin Falcon and uh, BC United policy and platform team on labor issues, on forestry, on rural British Columbia, on rural health care and transportation and Aboriginal affairs, all those kind of issues where, where I, you know, have some expertise and then my knowledge for having lived there in that area for 57 years. That's where my focus is going to be. Mm-hmm. You say that the um, present NDP don't have any interest in, in, in rural British Columbia. I know they do have um, uh, some MLAs uh, from the north uh, or an MLA from the north. They have, uh, I think, one in the interior in Kootenays as well. Um, you know, one would argue, look, the LNG industry is moving forward under John Horgan and, and, and under David Eby. Um, with uh, Cedar LNG moving forward, uh, and then, of course, LNG Canada under um, uh, Mr. Horrigan. Uh, is this specific to forestry that you're concerned about, or do you think somehow this is about mining as well? I know you talked about mining and forestry. Are those the two big industries you feel have been left behind be- uh, by the NDP? Well, you know, the number of uh, BC NDP MLAs from rural BC, you can count them on one hand. And they're muted. They're quiet. I mean, you had... Uh, a long-time MLA, uh, Katrina Conroy, who was a minister of forests, and before that, Doug Donaldson, they've done nothing to help uh, the interests of small-town communities uh, that are based in forestry, for one thing. And so, you know, you're talking about some of these other projects. I mean, I, I mean, I only listed forestry and mining. There's also oil and gas. There's, you know, there's fisheries, uh, you know, and there's uh, tourism, wilderness tourism. There are a whole lot of other industries that are there in rural British Columbia that are ground-based. So, and agriculture and fruit growing especially as well. So, you know, and I only listed a couple in the beginning. But some of these things that are going through, whether it's uh, the dam up in the north and the LNG, those were initiatives started by Christy Clark. And so the NDP is finishing them off. And yet, you know, they fought tooth and nail the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, you know, that uh, tore through interior BC. It's creating thousands of jobs. And those communities along it, uh, that route, are actually just loving it in terms of the number of dollars that are being spent, especially if some of those communities lost their sawmill. Mm-hmm. Now, you say you want to advise on uh, the interior to the BC United Party. Uh, you had, don't have any interest in running. But one would also argue that BC United has to win urban British Columbia. They have to win in Metro Vancouver, which represents 55% of the province population, 61% of this province's GDP. Uh, do you, you worry that you, your voice will get lost in the desire to... Uh, actually focus on Metro Vancouver because that's what they need to be focusing on. And while they probably appreciate having a former NDP cabinet minister join the party, but do you worry at all that your voice will be lost because their focus will be on Metro Vancouver in regards to getting elected? No, I'm not worried about that. I mean, uh, first of all, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that obviously will be advising, uh, you know, uh, Kevin Falcon and BC United in terms of the interests of urban British Columbia. Let me talk about the resource industry. You know that they, that they are literally tens of thousands of jobs in, in Maple Ridge, uh, Chilliwack, Abbotsford, Surrey, and all those communities in the lower mainland that are dependent on the resource sector, especially forestry and mining and others. They're dependent on oil and gas as well. And a lot of them are actually in the Indo-Canadian and Pakistani communities because there's a lot of... Uh, 
uh, value-added remanners all throughout the lower mainland in the Fraser Valley. They're all dependent on the flow of logs and the flow of uh, fiber uh, from there. So when the fiber is not available to them, those are tens of thousands of families that are going to be left without jobs. So, you know, when rural British Columbia prospers, so does the rest of the province. We've got over 100 years of history proving that. That is the resource sector that has built this province. Uh, and everybody has benefited, whether you're rural or urban. And then the one other point I just want to, you know, is a bit of a disclaimer I want to point out is my comments are related to the BC NDP. They have nothing to do with the federal NDP or Jagmeet Singh uh, and, and what he's doing there. Uh, I mean, I like Jagmeet Singh. I'm a supporter of this. So none of these comments uh, should be convey, uh, construed as, as being negative on the federal NDP or Jagmeet Singh. Uh, so I want to reiterate uh, one more thing with you. A, this isn't sour grapes because you got booted out of the party. And number two, I want to reiterate this again. You don't plan to run uh, for BC United in the next election. Well, that's correct. I mean, you know, the other thing I just want to point out, and I mean, you know, the, the NDB head office, uh, they put out some, you know, stupid statement, in my opinion, saying that, you know, they kicked me out of the party uh, two and a half years ago, and that's why I'm doing this and that I undermined uh, the Aboriginal uh, candidate, the Indigenous candidate. Do they not mention that the, uh, the Indigenous candidate undermined me, along with Craig Keating in 2016 and 2017? So they're blaming me for his loss? Who do I blame for, for my loss in 2017? I mean, so they're just, pro- what you're seeing is they're projecting their own faults in, in terms of what may or may not have happened a few years ago. Uh, Mr. Lally, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks, Jess. But recently, you probably saw a picture on social media of BC NDP MLAs wearing nail polish. Uh, they published that earlier this week. Now, the picture uh, was in support of a grade two student in Prince Rupert. Shamar is eight years old, and he was left heartbroken uh, recently uh, because his parents claimed the little boy had his nail polish removed in class by his teacher. Uh, without uh, his consent or his parents' consent. Now, the little boy was so frightened that he did not attend school for more than a week. Now, once the issue became known, the school district began an investigation. Joining me now uh, to talk about uh, the incident Shamar went through is uh, Shamar's stepfather, Noel Williams. Uh, Noel, thank you for your time today. Uh, It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, what is going through your mind today? Uh, to my understanding, um, uh, Shamar is uh, still at home. Uh, what goes through your mind today? Uh, actually, it, there's a lot that goes through my mind. My thing that concerns me is his safety and the things that's not being done, like the teacher hasn't apologized yet. It's just a lot of anger and frustration, but I intend to not show it because I need to be here for my kids and I need to te- I need to teach them that, you know, right from wrong and stuff like that. And being angry is not the way to be. Stuff's got to be done the right way and it takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, for me and our audience, I just want to clarify, uh, your son was at school and he had his fingernails painted and he's a grade two student? Yes, he's in grade two, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, he had decided to go get a manicure, pedicure with his mom for a late birthday present. Um, it was his birthday back in April, and uh, we didn't get him nothing, that, not at the time, but um, he had wanted to get his nails done because his mom and them were going to get it done, and his two sisters 
So I let him go, and he wanted to go, so he was happy to be there. And then uh, two or three days later, the teacher had decided to take his nail polish off with nail polish remover in front of the classroom while telling him that the nail polish was ugly, and this kid's only eight years old. Uh, did she also, it's been reported, she said, quote, it's not right. Did she say that as well? Yes, it's not right. That's another thing she was saying. Uh, and now your son is in, in school. How come? Uh, he is actually in school now, actually. He uh, he's been attending now for the last three days. But before that, uh, he didn't know that the teacher is off on leave until the investigation is under control. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, he was worried about going to school and, you know, like running into her in the, in the hallway. And he was terrified. Like, he, he didn't know what to do. He came up to me and asked me, like, you know, what do I do if I see her or, you know, something like that. And I said, well, you don't have to go to school. And then on Monday, Sunday night, he came up to me and had told me he's ready to go back to school. And uh, Monday morning he went and he's been there ever since. Now, did the teacher in question uh, provide any explanation as to why she told your son that the nail polish that he was wearing was ugly and uh, why she said it's not right? Uh, she had no comment, no nothing. Uh, she had no words for me, nothing. Uh, she was just quiet and just said it was a misunderstanding is what she kept saying to me. The only thing they had done right now so far is had suspended this teacher and had moved him to a different classroom. So your son's in a different classroom, not with the same teacher? Uh, no, he, he's not in that classroom anymore. He's not. What would you like see see done? I would like to see this teacher either get fired, like just let go not to be allowed back in the school because like i have told you and my my partner the baby's mom the actual biological mother she had told me that she had got some comments from other parents had come forward and let her know that uh that's not the first time who else has she done this to some people don't want to step forward like i did like i love my son to death and that's what i did for him and i stand behind him 100 percent, and i ain't giving up until justice is served or something's done with this teacher because my kid didn't deserve nothing like that Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she is now, to, to your understanding, off work. Yeah, she's off leave until they find out what they're going to be doing with her because she's under investigation right now. Yeah, uh, Mr. Williams, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, all the best to you uh, and your son. All right, thank you very much. It's been another beautiful day, and the great weather is about to get even better. Now that, of course, depends uh, on whether you like the heat. Uh, Throughout the lower mainland and the south coast, temperatures will hit uh, 32 degrees or higher in the coming days, uh, depending on where you live, of course. Uh, Here's Global BC's Yvonne Schell, just in case you wanted an idea of the forecast this weekend. uh, Take a listen to Yvonne here. Hi there, I'm Yvonne Shell in the Global Sky Tracker Weather Center. Mainly sunny today, highs between 20 away from the water up to 24. A few clouds this evening will be down to 9 for an overnight low. Warm one for Friday, 23 inland, 28 with the humidex closer to 30 degrees. Hot and sunny though, leading in towards the weekend. For example, Sunday, Monday, the peak of the heat, 25 away from the water up to 33. 33, that is hot. Now, uh, this won't be as hot as the um, heat dome that we experienced a few years ago, but authorities will be monitoring vulnerable citizens. In fact, when long stretches of hot days are forecast, how we prepare has changed. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Patrick Johnston, the mayor of New Westminster. Patrick, thank you for speaking to us today. 
Thank you very much, Jazz. Uh, we are not expecting a heat dome uh, this uh, weekend, weekend, uh, but temperatures certainly will be rising. Uh, what protocol do you as a mayor and as a council go through when you look at these heat events um, uh, moving forward? Yeah, the forecast for the weekend is starting to firm up and the city has different response levels based on sort of what heat is expected. Um, we don't expect to hit, to hit a heat warning level, which is something that Environment Canada issues. We sort of expect a special weather statement level. And clearly we'll be nowhere near what we were with the heat dome uh, uh, in 2021. But we take lead from Environment Canada on what the forecast is expected. So under a special weather statement, we sort of expect highs to be around 30, but we do expect it to be uh, more tolerable at night and that humidity doesn't, isn't expected to be very high. So we gauge our response based on you know, what we expect from Environment Canada. Mm-hmm. It's certainly very early in the summer season to be receiving these kinds of heat warnings. But um, so right now we're monitoring the forecast. Staff in the city are preparing cooling venue commanders. What we're doing is making sure that we have the staffing and the resources in place to open the cooling centers if they are needed this weekend. And we are starting to organize our communications and coordinating with Fraser Health with the idea that when, when we make a, have to make a final determination later today or tomorrow, we will be able to respond very quickly. And, and this is now a permanent process and permanent protocol for you uh, as we head into the, into the summer uh, moving forward? Yeah, as I said, it's, it's a little surprising that, again, we're going to have to do this. We're having to do this earlier in the season every year. But um, we have taken a lot of lessons from the 2021 heat dome event and have updated our heat response plans at, at every level, at these sort of heat emergency and at the most extreme events. Now we have... So we've been really, yeah, we've been partnering with Fraser Health at every step along the way. So part of it is, is ramping up the response based on their advice and on what comes from Environment Canada. Uh, now, beyond cooling centres for a moment, what other things do you think your city and, the, and Metro Vancouver in general need to be doing moving forward if this is the new normal in regards to, uh, you know, an earlier, warmer spring and then heading into a, a hot summer, what kind of things do you think we need to be broadly looking at moving forward? Yeah, we have responses at various levels. Um, there are opening up cooling centers, obviously, but it's also about we're also going to be partnering with Fraser Health on setting up um, a, a central heat emergency monitoring central center in one of our central community centers. And that is where we're going to be able to centralize a bunch of high-demand services but, and also the, so the first responders uh, can evacuate vulnerable people there if they need to do so. We're doing a new outdoor cooling strategy. We're going to have up to 15 outdoor cool listing stations and we're mapping out new, new uh, approaches for our outdoor areas to make sure that people uh, know where to go for not just misting stations but also cooling areas outside. And we're also working with Fraser Health on a pilot program for air conditioner loaning. The idea that a lot of buildings don't have that one cool room and we're trying to partner with Fraser Health to figure out how we can loan air conditioners so that at least we can create a cool space in every building. Uh, and that's, that's something that we're still trying to uh, work out the details on and, re- and launch this summer, hopefully for the heat, for the heat season this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, your council colleague, I do believe Nadine Nakagawa, uh, presented or was supported a motion at I think the Fraser Valley Local Government Association, it didn't pass, and that was basically stating that, 
you know, uh, landlords are already responsible for, for providing heating for tenants. They should also be responsible for providing cooling. Now, uh, there's a big broad conversation in and around that, and some may agree or disagree. But is that, do you believe that's part of the conversation moving forward as well, not just landlords, but building codes as well in regards to how we deal with these heat events? Yeah, that was a resolution brought forward by the um, City of Port Moody to the Lower Mainland Wolf Government Association. It was unfortunately not supported in a very close vote. Um, And the idea was that we need to engage the province in a conversation about making cooling systems mandatory, just as we currently do for heating systems. Uh, People in cities, people in the cities are not freezing to death in their apartments right now because we have mandatory heating standards. They are dying of heat exhaustion in their apartments because we don't have mandatory cooling standards. So that is, I think, a conversation we have to start having province-wide, uh, not something I think any of us expected, would have expected 10 years ago. But I think we have to have that conversation. Internally in New Westminster, we're also doing a policy review um, to determine whether we have any regulatory tools in the city where we can require um, multifamily buildings that don't have central cooling to at least have an established heat emergency plan. So building managers around the city in every multifamily building are required to have fire safety systems in place and have a functional fire response plan. We may need to start applying that same scrutiny to extreme heat events now. We have to recognize 600 people in this province died, 28 people in New Westminster died in that event in 2021. And that's not the last time that event is gonna happen. So uh, if we need to bring in new regulatory tools to keep people safe uh, during that next event, I think that's something we can't take off the table. Hmm. Uh, when we did, we did talk about that particular topic with our listeners, and a lot of folks weren't happy in the sense that, you know, it's, it's already cost prohibitive for many of them. Many landlords were calling in as well. Uh, do you think this is sellable to the public in regards to, especially to landlords, saying, look, you're responsible for heating. Cooling is going to be part of that responsibility moving forward as well. I think that uh, I think it's a difficult conversation, and I do think there are costs. However, we have to put that into scope that 600 people in the province died in that event. 28 people in my community died, in my neighborhood died in that event. Life safety is the responsibility of building management and landlords. They have to make sure that the places they are renting out are safe for people to occupy. This is a brand new conversation for us. I don't think, again, a decade ago, any of us would have been considering cooling as being part of, of important life safety functions in our buildings. But that's the, that's the situation we're in now with, with climate disruption. And um, so, yeah, it's a difficult conversation. It's an expensive conversation. It's something that the provincial government is going to have to be involved in as a conversation about the cost management of this. Mm-hmm. But um, to just, just dismiss important life safety uh, requirements because of cost is, um, is something I don't think we can accept. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when I look at uh, an aerial view of Vancouver, I'm always amazed at the tree canopy on the west side of Vancouver, <laughs> and you compare that to the east side of Vancouver, and there's a glaring difference. And I bring that up in the context of climate change and the context of keeping people cool. I guess that's part of it as well. Like, you're going to have to look at even just planting more trees, or how do we plant trees? Where do we plant trees? How do we sort of make our our physical environment uh, respond to some of the climate change challenges before us as well. Yeah, the city of New Westminster has an urban forest management strategy, and we have set aggressive goals for tree planting, and we are emphasizing neighborhoods that are currently have the fewest trees because that isn't like 
creating an environment outside where these temperature spikes are mitigated by greenery, by, by tree canopy is part of that tool. But, you know, any effort we do today to address our tree canopy, we're not going to see the benefits of that for 10 or 20 years because it takes that time for trees to be established and be able to provide those services. So it's important that we do that work. It is, it is vital that we do that work. But again, that's a 10-year down the road plan, even if we do that work today. So we do have to look at the mitigation that we can do in the short term. Patrick, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Daz, for, again, talking about this important issue. We all know about the BC Housing Audit. It was tabled in the legislature on Monday. Um, And since then, the Premier, of course, has asked and suggested and hinted, whatever you want to call this, including the housing minister as well, that the CEO of the Tira Women's Resource Society, Janice Abbott, should step down. Now, when the report was tabled, Premier David E.B. said that Shane Ramsey, who was the then CEO of BC Housing, was actively breaking the conflict of interest agreement when it comes to decisions involving Atira Housing. Now, as I said, the society was led by his wife, Janice Abbott. Mr. Ramsey, uh, as CEO of BC Housing uh, for 22 years, um, and according to the Premier, Mr. Ramsey sent text messages telling staff to direct grants to Atira, which was a violation of conflict of interest rules. And since 2018, Atira has received $120 million in funding. Now, there have been numerous people who said that uh, Ms. Abbott should step down. Um, but so far, uh, the organization that she is with, the board, has said that um, nothing was wrong. They did nothing wrong. And that uh, Ms. Abbott will, at this point, it appears, stay on the job. But there's been a significant amount of conversation around what does this mean for the broader nonprofit housing sector and nonprofits broadly. Joining me now is Sue Brown, Director of Advocacy and Staff and a Staff Lawyer at Justice for Girls. Uh, Sue, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So before we get into the broader issue of BC Housing, I just want to talk a little bit about Justice for Girls. What does your organization do? And explain a little bit about um, the kind of help that you provide. Yes, uh, so we are a nonprofit human rights organization. Uh, we're based in Vancouver, but we work throughout the province. Our mandate is to advocate for the rights and equality of teenage girls who live in poverty, and we've been doing that work for just over 23 years throughout the province. Uh, much of our work takes us to working with some of the most marginalized and abused uh, teenage girls in, in our communities in British Columbia. Um, and we work both in Vancouver, but we work a lot as well in some of the more remote and northern communities. Does that mean you also help them find housing if needed? Uh, yes, at times we do. We advocate uh, on all fronts uh, for their human rights to be respected. And in many of the advocacy cases that we work on, housing insecurity or unsafe housing is one of the biggest issues and one of the highest vulnerability factors that uh, result in girls uh, living homeless or uh, needing a new place to live, um, violence and safety and abuse at home tends to be one of the greatest risks. Um, but often by the time girls end up at our door, um, almost all of the institutions and systems have failed them. Mm-hmm. Um, does Atira work with young girls? Do they provide housing for, 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 for these teenage girls? They do. They have one housing project that was started in 2011. It's called the Emotu House. It's located in the downtown east side on Jackson Street. Uh, when they initially proposed Emotu House in 2011, we, along with a number of other community organizations, raised serious concerns about their proposal to house the girls that we work with. 
um, some of the most vulnerable in one of the most dangerous communities for teenage girls. Um, it's uh, the uh, disturbing irony of the fact that uh, 120 Jackson Street was historically a brothel, was not lost on any of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at a time in the community when gender-based violence and violence against girls in particular was at an all-time high. Um, and the girls who, who wind up at Imodu uh, are, are of the most vulnerable um, so, yes, they do house uh, girls. And also, uh, we know of, um, even though they have adult-only facilities, we know of, of teenage girls who have been abused in those houses as well. What was the response to the concerns that you and your organization raised? Well, I would say, given what we've learned most recently, I'd say it's almost true to form for Atira's uh, business practices uh, in response to the concerns that we raised. Janice Abbott met with uh, approximately 30 to 35 groups in 2011 after uh, proposing Emotu and came to the table under the guise of, of wanting to discuss the concerns of the community. And after listening to members at the meeting for two hours, she stood up and announced that Emotu had been open for a month and that children were already living there. So where do you think, I mean, if you're meeting folks uh, to explain where you're coming from, perhaps to consult or the appearance of consultation, I mean, why would anybody go and talk to an entire group of folks and then say, we've already been open for a month? Did you sense a, uh, was there a sense of uh, arrogance or dismissiveness or that we just know better? I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of the mood there and, and, the, and the mindset uh, when, when you're sitting there talking to these organizations. Well, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that it could have been all of the above. I can't you know, speculate on that. But mm-hmm. I think the community felt that the efforts to consult, the, consult them and hear their concerns was entirely disingenuous on Atira's part. Um, and it, the entire chapter was sort of shrouded within a bit of um, secrecy or maybe a lack of transparency. Um, I mean, motions were passed through City Hall fairly quickly and without much discussion. Um, and, and it all seemed to be sort of moving so fast, similar to what we learned from the audit report about, you know, how how Atira was uh, approving projects and purchasing property with restricted funds without BC Housing's permission, it, it seemed to be similar, acting acting first and then um, asking for permission later mm-hmm. or apologizing later. Um, but, I mean, when we're talking about the young women that we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, the need for a standard of housing that complies with human rights, a standard of housing that is going to promote their dignity um, and provide them with safety. We're talking about lives, um, and you know that that um, seems to be lost in that entire conversation. So, and, so you weren't surprised at all by the findings from this um, BC Housing audit. We were very disappointed, but we were not surprised. Where do we by, go from? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say we were disappointed but not surprised by what we learned. I think many advocates who have been concerned about the standards of housing in Atira's facilities and in the downtown east side generally, um, and many of us who have been concerned about their practices for so long are finding this to be somewhat validating of the concerns that have been raised. Why do you think it's taken this long uh, for this information to come out to get uh, to shine a spotlight on 
um, the housing sector, but the nonprofit sector, and ultimately to hopefully make things better for those who need help, but particularly those that your organization is trying to help. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, this isn't the first time that we've seen issues like this in the downtown east side, um, particularly around the housing providers in the past. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we really need to look at this sort of ongoing practice and um, uh, acceptance of empire building on the part of these housing service providers, uh, whereby they're able to obtain a monopoly on on the housing and the housing funds that are issued, um, and seemingly with with very little accountability or transparency. But I think the real question here is about the standard of housing and the support that we offer women and girls who are trying to escape violence and poverty. We don't need empire building by housing providers. We need quality housing and support that promotes and protects their dignity, safety, and human rights. So is is this a question of getting away? from the SRO model, what type of housing would you like to see a greater emphasis on compared to what we're doing presently or in the past? Well, I think one of the biggest issues is the fact that this housing is in the downtown east side to begin with. I think we need to be moving to models that are decentralized out of the downtown east side. It's a dangerous community, unfortunately, and it's not the people there that make it dangerous necessarily, but it's the, it's the culture um, and, and um, the, the culture that we've allowed to continue. And it's, it's partly contributed to by the SRO model. And when people are living in um, undignifying conditions, um, it's, it's no wonder that we're seeing uh, what we're seeing down there. So first and foremost, I would say we need to move the housing out of the downtown east side. And secondly, we need to be committed to a model of housing that puts human rights first and puts dignity first. And to my mind, there's absolutely no reason that the amount of money that's been flowing into those housing providers shouldn't have produced something much better than, than we have. So who's to blame here? Is it is it BC Housing or is it ultimately the provincial government that has sort of taken its eye off the ball? And I don't want to pick on any particular government or party, but I mean, these problems are back from 2010, so it so it spans BC Liberal and NDP. I mean, mm-hmm. where, where, does, where does the buck stop? Who do you blame? Uh, I mean, that's a difficult question. At the end of the day, I think, you know, uh, the the provincial government uh, and the federal government are ultimately responsible for ensuring um, adequate and safe housing for all. It's it's our government institutions that have those human rights obligations, but the housing providers, too, um, and BC Housing, absolutely. Um, I think everybody has to take a, a good, hard look at at the role of all of these institutions and all of these bodies to to um, to look into to what went wrong here, but but I think it's endemic, unfortunately, um, as we've seen with other service providers in the past down there, and and I think we need to to look to a new model. Sue, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Beginning of this year, the city of Vancouver announced that air conditioning units are no longer pen, uh, permitted to be installed in homes. Uh, and instead must be replaced with heat pumps, which provide uh, lower carbon heating and cooling. Now, it's part of a broader conversation we're having, of course, here in British Columbia, and especially here in Metro Vancouver. You saw me or you heard me earlier this show talking to Patrick Johnson, uh, the mayor of New Westminster. We were talking about cooling stations as temperatures hit about 32 degrees um, Celsius. Um, there was a motion before the Lower Mainland, local government associations where landlords... 
uh, would be compelled to have, obviously they provide heating. Whenever you pay your rent, they, they have to, by law, provide heating. Uh, the motion was asking that the lower mainland um, landlords also, by law, be required to provide cooling um, as well. Now, the motion failed, but I'm sure it was, a, first of all, it was a very close vote. Uh, but moving forward, it is part of the broader conversation. I'm sure that vote uh, and that issue will come up again and eventually it will pass. But what does it look like in regards to what does heating or cooling look like um, moving forward? Joining me now is Tim Kester, General Manager at Reliance Home Comfort. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about, um, you know, heat pumps. Uh, first and foremost, for our listeners, how do heat pumps work? So it's interesting. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, but a heat pump design, so heat moves from uh, warmer areas to cooler areas. So that's the way that heat transmits normally. And what a heat pump does is it will take um, heat from one area and move it to the opposite way to where it's cooler. So in the summertime, for example, it will take heat from inside your home and pump it outside, therefore cooling down your home. And in the winter, it runs the opposite way. It actually is surprising, but it can pull heat out of temperatures in, in the negative Celsius degrees, uh, find heat there, and bring it inside your home to heat your home uh, in the winter. Uh, and not that you would have an exact number, but in regards to housing today, how many homes do you think are condominiums? Like, do you have a sense of the percentage as to homes that would have heat pumps? I don't with heat pumps, Jazz. Uh, our, our last numbers that we got um, indicated that there's about 15% of homes in the Lower Mainland that have cooling. Uh, so whether that's an AC or a heat pump, um, so that's roughly, I don't know the split between heat pumps. They were pretty big uh, kind of in the late, uh, early 90s, mm-hmm. uh, but kind of the, the technology wasn't quite where it is today. So we've really seen a resurgence uh, in interest in heat pumps and, and number of installs over the last year and a half. Now, there, I'm told there's two types of sort of air source heat pumps, like ductless and ducted systems. What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. So if you have a, a customer or, or someone who's got a home today that uses a furnace, uh, that forces air through vents in the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, you would get a ducted heat pump. So it would be a unit would get installed outside and be connected to uh, another apparatus we install above the furnace uh, called a coil, which would, would be where the heat and cooling would come in from the outdoor unit. And then the air that goes through your furnace um, would blow through that same ductwork. Um, obviously, in the summertime, the furnace heat exchanger wouldn't be turned on, so it would just be the room temperature air blowing through the coil, which would move the cool air uh, throughout the home. And then if homes that don't have ductwork uh, today, so if you have baseboard heating um, or different, or, you know, boilers, in-floor heating, things like that, mm-hmm. uh, we would recommend for those customers, they would get a ductless. So again, what would be a, a installed outside would be a condenser outside. And then there would be um, some lines that would run to individual heads that would be mounted in different rooms in the house um, that could provide heating in the in the winter and cooling in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, n- now, when you look at British Columbia, you know uh, our heating and cooling needs may be a little different from, let's say, Prince George uh, or other parts of the province. Uh, are there factors to consider when choosing a heat pump? There are for sure. There's uh, there's kind of two different styles of heat pump. There's a, a, a standard heat pump, and then there's cold climate heat pump. So, and a lot of the new technology is going to the cold climate one, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the, the price is coming down on those, so it's, it's kind of a level playing field now. 
so yeah, in, in colder climates, um, you'd want to for sure get a cold climate heat pump. And, and what that means is their efficiency when it's colder outside. Like I said, you can a heat pump will still be able to heat your home when it's in the negative degree temperatures. And some of the technology today, they can operate uh, you know, up to 30, minus 30 degrees Celsius and still find heat in that air to, to warm your home. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. And, and, and it, like, is there a difference between a new home uh, and an older home? Um, you know, it could be insulation, whatever it may be. Are there differences in regards to new homes and older homes? Absolutely. So, and, and insulation is a big part of it, and, and construction methods are a big part of it, too. But a lot of our, our team members, we, we've taken some courses that we can uh, are certified to measure your home, take even the, the aspect of your home, so how much of your home is facing the sun and how many windows are on that side of the home. So when, when someone in our industry goes into a home and, and is looking at figuring out the size of the unit that's needed to adequately cool or heat the home, we look at all those different factors. So, yeah, what type of insulation is in the attic? Uh, what type of roof materials do you have? How thick are your walls? insulation are you on slabs you have you know a basement underground where typically there's cooler air there so you'd need less um less heating or cooling so uh, you look at all those factors and then that decides usually what size of of air conditioner or heat pump that you would need to adequately provide you with uh with the cooling and heating that you need Hmm. Uh, i i guess the one question i haven't asked and i think it's probably the most important to a certain degree what's the cost of a heat pump it ranges. There, there's some big uh, varieties. I mean, if you can get a um, a single head, so you just a ductless unit single head, you know that would service a, a medium, a small small to medium size apartment building. You can get in for probably around nine to ten thousand um, dollars. And then there's there's different models too. So you can have ones that have different functionality, uh, higher technology. So you know, one for a larger home, you, you're looking up to probably in the $30,000 range um, and anywhere in between. So we've got a lot of models, like for homes in the lower mainland, uh, we probably start for a whole system. Um, you would be looking at probably about $15,000. And then there's a lot of uh, rebates going on right now too, you know, up to, depending on what municipality you live in, you can get up to ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 in rebates. So um, there's some good incentives there to, to consider a heat pump if you're looking at a cooling option. So in your mind, this is the present and future uh, here in the Metro Vancouver area and, and, and mostly around Canada. This is the this is the way where we're going in regards to heating and cooling systems for our homes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, obviously Vancouver has uh, has led the way with that, with uh, making the, the call this year to uh, not allow any um, air conditioners in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're seeing it... Uh, our, our demand for heat pumps this year versus last year, even the interest in the customer, you know, BC Hydro's had their ads out there, you know, just letting people know what heat pumps are all about. A lot of the trade shows we've been at the last, last while, Hydro's been there just educating customers about heat pumps. And I think now that customers understand more and more about how they work and how efficient they can be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the reduced greenhouse gas emissions um, by, by cooling your or heating your home using a heat pump, uh, it's, it's definitely uh, the way things are going. And we're even seeing it like we're across Canada and, and even in Ontario where typically it's a colder climate and, and people were not thinking heat pumps would be suitable. We're seeing a huge uptick um, in people going to heat pumps there as well. Uh, I'm curious. Um, I'm, it's obviously going to be easier in a, in a new home, a new home build, but how complex is it to, to retrofit it into an older home, uh, a heat pump, if you want to bring in that system? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it varies. So, it, it really, when you're putting in a new heat pump, you're, you're basically, I guess the analogy could be, you're putting in 
say, a new heart with the existing arteries and veins that are in the home. So it really relies on the ductwork in the home um, as to how efficient that heating or cooling will get distributed around the home. Um, and it is a little more, the cooling is a little more um, sensitive to airflow restriction than, say, a furnace is. Uh, so, you know, when our, our teams or anyone in our industries in the, in the home, they're going to be looking at the size of the ductwork uh, and then deciding, you know, is, is a heat pump added to your existing furnace or, or a new heat pump system with a new furnace, is that going to be suitable for your home? Or would a, a ductless unit be better suited just because of maybe some restrictions in your airflow and your ductwork and, and not suitable? And the older the homes, obviously, they didn't, uh, you know, in Vancouver, they didn't plan for air conditioning or, or heat pumps uh, back when most of them were built. So uh, there are some, some tougher jobs there where maybe sometimes even customers are going to have to get additional ductwork added or, or return air um, added in which an air balancing company can come in and, and do an assessment. But that involves some more work, so you're going to be cutting open walls and adding in ductwork and things like that. So it can go from a fairly simple one-head install mm-hmm. uh, on a ductless unit to, you know, potentially opening walls and adding some some return air and, and more ductwork uh, into a home. When the conversation around heat pumps began, were you skeptical initially? Yes, I, I was. Uh, I, I had some friends that got heat pumps back, you know, like I said, in the in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, the, you know, that really went, the, the technology, like I said, wasn't there. So, when, yeah, when we first started having the conversations and, and industry chats about, you know, this coming and some of the, the uh, legislation changes that were coming, there were a lot of questions in the industry about how effective these could be. And, and then, you know, as it gets cooler out, the, the efficiency of the units decrease because it's harder to find that warm air outside to bring inside, say, in the, in the winter. And so trying to figure out is the cost effectiveness going to be there as it, as it works harder to find that warm air and, and move it into the home. And really the, the new technologies, as I say, um, have really come a long way and, uh, and proven any doubters that uh, they're, they are effective and efficient uh, and can be cost effective and, and really um, help people who are looking to reduce their carbon footprint. Yeah, I, I remember uh, some folks that I knew uh, um, put them in their houses in the early 90s, I think it was, and they weren't bad, but there's always some challenges, some problems, but the technology is so different now, and we, we at leaps and bounds uh, that I, I've I've heard many, many good things uh, compared to the initial early days, like any technology, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely, and even, even the advancements, to be honest, in the last few years, just with, with the increased interest and the move to electrification, um, all the manufacturers are obviously have the finger on the pulse of, of where the markets are going mm-hmm. and what legislation is going to be. So they've even really changed, you know, their game. And there's been even some new, because the size of the old ones too. I don't know if your friend, but I remember my friends, it looked like a car uh, <laughs> beside their home. It was huge yeah, uh, heavy and awkward. And, uh, you know, there's some now that are, that are, you know, as small as kind of three feet uh, long by a couple feet wide and, a, and three feet tall. So there's, uh, you know, some really, they're they're been able to to get the size down and 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 the cost down too, which sometimes isn't the thing with new technology. A lot of times, newer technology, the price goes up. But manufacturers are are really doing a great job of getting the size down, but also getting the prices down, so they're more in line with uh, with air conditioners. Not quite there yet, but uh, like I said, there's all those rebates out there which help uh, kind of even the playing field on the price side. Uh, and make that easier, uh, decision easier for customers. Yeah, BC Hydro certainly has a few rebates. Uh, I was checking on their website as well. Tim, thank you so much. No, thank you, Jazz.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.